Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. I keep things on time and on track today. Well, welcome, and thank you for joining us for the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. I'm Christina Cuthbertson, and it's my pleasure to be your moderator for today, for this session on the Office of Religious Freedoms and Canadian Foreign Policy, Myth or Reality, with uh, Christopher Kakucha. So before I introduce him, just a few housekeeping items to get to... out of the way. Um, lunch today is $10, and there's a basket in the center of your tables. If you can put your money in there and have someone at your table count it prior to SACPA coming around and collecting it, that would be greatly appreciated. Um, please remember to turn off your cell phones and note that today's session is being recorded. Um, SACPA is a nonprofit organization run by volunteers, and we rely on the generous contributions of our partners and, of course, our lunch attendees. I'd just like to give a quick thanks to the University of Lethbridge, Country Kitchen Catering, and Shaw TV for their support of, of SACPA. Our session today will follow the regular format, 30 minutes for our speaker, 30 minutes for lunch, and an opportunity to discuss for discussion and to uh, um, form your questions, and then 30 minutes for a question period following, following our lunch. So without any further delay, I would like to introduce to you Christopher Kukucha. He's an associate professor at the University of Lethbridge in the Department of Political Science. Um, His most recent publication is the second edition of Readings in Canadian Foreign Policy, Classic Debates and New Ideas. Uh, It's co-edited with Dwayne Bratton, was published in 2011. He's also the author of Provinces... Sorry, author of The Provinces and Canadian Foreign Trade Policy, published in 2008. In 2007, he served as the William J. Fulbright Research Chair at the Canadian Studies um, um, Canadian Studies at State University in New York, and he's the past president of the International Studies Association in of Canada and a book reviewer for Canadian Foreign Policy Journal. His primary Teaching and research includes Canadian foreign policy, international political economy, international research theory, and Canada's global trade relations. So please join me in welcoming Christopher Kakucha. Uh, thank you very much for being here uh, today, and thank you to uh, the Southern Alberta Council of Public Affairs for. Uh, inviting me to speak today. Um, I've been asked to talk about the Office of Religious Freedom and its implications for uh, Canadian foreign policy or potential implications for Canadian foreign policy. And the first difficulty I had when I was asked to do this is to figure out how I was going to evaluate something that doesn't yet exist. Um, And so what I decided to do is uh, take some very vague and ambiguous concepts that a former professor of mine at the University of Alberta used to use evaluating Canadian federalism, and it was the question of whether or not Canadian federalism was a myth or reality. And uh, given the ambiguousness of the office and what it's actually going to do or not do, I thought I would use similar uh, measures. So 
There we go. So what I'm going to do here is evaluate uh, the office, potential office, and what it might do using the following criteria. So we'll keep it really simple and uh, use the dictionary definition of a reality. It's a real thing or a fact. Um, so what that means in terms of policy, uh, I felt that to be a real thing or a fact, it would have to actually result in some sort of actual tangible policy outcome. So will the office also, will the office uh, eventually result in some sort of actual foreign policy outcomes from a Canadian perspective? And on the surface, that seems to be a very easy question to answer. I mean, obviously, the office is a reality. Um, it was announced during the uh, election campaign, the federal election campaign in May of 2011. Uh, and Foreign Affairs Minister John Baird has subsequently uh, announced the office in a speech to the United Nations uh, shortly after that time, where he cited the initiative as being consistent with core Canadian values such as freedom, democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. So on the surface, it seems to be a reality. Uh, myth, on the other hand, uh, is defined as an imaginary or fictitious thing. So in terms of policy, I felt that maybe the way we could evaluate it as a myth would be whether it lacks any specific policy outcome or whether it's a policy outcome without any specific significance. So um, that's the criteria for evaluating whether or not this is going to be a myth or reality. But it has to be a bit more specific than that because in terms of policy, we have to be able to evaluate what type of policy. So the measures I decided was, and these are, these are the stated goals of, of the Canadian government, so they're not my measures, these are the stated goals of, of our current federal government, uh, is that the office will have to have an impact in terms of the treatment of religious groups in other states, so it will help uh, protect religious groups potentially persecuted in other states. And it will also prioritize all multi-faith uh, perspectives and not simply Judeo-Christian views. So does the office do that or does the office not do that? Impossible to tell because it doesn't yet exist. But there are some ways to speculate and, and look at those questions based on the evidence that we have so far. So potential realities. Um, on the surface, there's, there's not much to question about uh, the validity or maybe the utility of an office such as this. Uh, John Baird has, in public statements, pointed out several things that are uh, positive uh, potential realities of the office or positive potential policy implications of the office. Uh, Baird has pointed out that societies that protect religious freedom are also more likely to protect other fundamental rights and freedoms, and that's certainly not a bad thing. Um, off, uh, Societies that protect religious freedoms also have a tendency to more stable and prosperous societies. Also a positive thing. Um, John Barrett has also pointed out that the office is consistent with Section 2 of the Charter of Rights of Freedoms in Canada, which protects freedom of conscience and uh, religion. Uh, freedom of religion is also a basic human right recognized by the UN Declaration of Human Rights, which again is another positive potential outcome. And one of the things that, that Barrett has made very clear is that he sees this office, and the office, when it is created, will be housed in the Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade. And Barrett has made it very clear that he sees this as a possibility of moving foreign affairs in the, and the Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade into some areas dealing with religious persecution, an area that foreign affairs and international trade has not spent a great deal of time and attention on in the past. <coughs> Excuse me. So that's also sort of a bureaucratic uh, influence and, and potential outcome of this as well. 
Uh, and finally, Baird has noted that the motivation to create this office has come from the persecution of religious groups in other societies. And he's gone out of his way to highlight uh, certain specific religious groups uh, in terms of the motivation of the office, especially Christians in Iran and Pakistan, but also Muslims and Buddhists uh, in other parts of the world, including Egypt, China, and Iraq. So all of these are, are very positive potential realities to come out of the office. Difficult to argue with any of these uh, possible outcomes. Um, the other criticism that's also been raised about the office is whether or not Canada as a secular state and a secular uh, government, uh, or secular state I should say, um, should be promoting an office for religious freedom in the first place. Uh, and Clifford Orwin, um, uh, a professor, political science professor at the University of Toronto, has addressed this uh, in a series of, of speeches and, and also in some op-eds uh, pieces in the Globe and Mail as well. And he's argued that, in fact, Canada should definitely be a leader in the protection of religious freedom uh, internationally, even though we are a secular state. Uh, and he points out that secularism from a liberal philosophical standpoint is actually about the separation of church of state, and Canada, as a secular state, has no religion and enforces no religion. But if you look at this from a liberal perspective in terms of protecting religious rights, it's very consistent with liberal uh, teachings and liberal uh, writings on the secular state. Very specifically, the whole idea of separating church and religion was to protect the state from influence of religion, but also to protect religion from the influence of the state. So therefore, uh, if we're looking to protect religious uh, groups in other states, Canada is in a good place to do that. So again, another very potential uh, positive potential uh, impact of this is the protection of these religious groups being very consistent with liberal, liberal secularism. Um, so in, based on all of these reasons, it seems very difficult to criticize or question whether or not uh, the Office of Religious Freedom will be uh, a myth, uh, will be a myth, or will be a reality, because it seems very clear that it will be. Um, and I'm going to come back to the secular protection versus promotion religion argument in just a second. Um, but let's deal with the other side of this discussion, which is the, the myth part of the argument. And I, I want to make it clear when I, when I deal with this that I'm not trying to be critical of, of John Baird or Clifford Orwin's uh, observations about religion uh, and the Office of Religious Freedom. But I do need to point out that there are several uh, potential uh, difficulties in the office's uh, obtaining or achieving some of the goals that it's, it's set out to do. So this is where we'll deal with the other side of the question. Uh, again, and I want to reiterate that the point here is to try and evaluate whether the office will have an impact on the protection of religious groups in other states and whether or not this will prioritize all multi-faith religious perspectives and not simply a Judeo-Christian uh, view. The first hurdle for the office is its budget. Um, the operating budget for the office is, is $5 million. Uh, that's been clarified already by the Conservative government. Uh, and the content of the staffing and, and content of the office in terms of personnel has also been clarified in initial comments by the federal government. It will have uh, one ambassador or head of the office, and it will also consist of up to five or six staff members. So an operating budget of $5 million with, with six to seven staff members after you pay overhead and all the other associated things that go along with that, is not a great deal of money to uh, protect uh, other religious groups being persecuted in other states. So right out, of the right out of the gate, we have some issues in terms of the capacity of this office to do what it might want to do. 
There's also the issue related to budget right now, and this is no secret, uh, that the federal conservatives will be looking to cut uh, the public service substantially over the next few years. And all departments across government have been asked to draft budgets uh, with operating cuts to 5 and also 10%. So every single department in the Canadian government has been asked to draft budgets with, uh, with cuts from 5 to 10%. Foreign affairs and international trade is one of the uh, constant budget losers uh, when it comes to federal politics. The Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade has been had its budget slashed repeatedly over the last 20 years uh, and continues to do so. And there's no doubt that it will once again be uh, a target in this latest round of cost cutting. So the fact that that $5 million set aside for the Office of Religious Freedom is also part of the Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade's budget also raises questions as to whether or not this will be long-term funding and more specifically whether or not it will be stable funding. Uh, in fact, Foreign Affairs has already made it clear that they are planning to close missions and embassies, <coughs> reduce postings abroad, and contract work out to the private sector. So the core element of what Foreign Affairs does is being slashed uh, the office is unlikely to be spared uh, in that as well. So budget will be one of the hurdles uh, facing the office as it moves forward. The mandate of the office is also uh, not terribly clear at this time. Um, it hasn't been proposed. And in fact, when John Baird was asked last month specifically what the, office of the, mandate, the mandate of the office would be, this was in January of 2012, he simply said that it will promote religious freedom. That's the only thing that he's uh, clarified to this point. <coughs> uh, it's clear, though, that the office will likely be followed, uh, will likely follow a U.S. model. The United States government has two similar offices uh, that do similar types of things. One is the Office of International Religious Freedom, which was created by Bill Clinton in 1998. And there's also the U.S. Commission on International Freedom that does similar type of, type of work. Uh, the U.S. office, uh, the ambassador of the Office of International Religious Freedom has several responsibilities, and that includes reporting to Congress, uh, promoting religious freedom in the United Nations and other international uh, institutions. And I want to highlight the word promote because it's different than the secular notion of protecting religious freedoms. Promoting is a separate issue and not the same thing. And it is also responsible for outreach to religious groups, constituencies in the United States, and, and other churches. So, and there's general consensus in the United States that the office uh, has done very good work and has raised uh, issues and awareness about religious persecution in other countries. So all of that is, is not uh, open to debate here. That's not the issue. But it has been raised that there are very close ties between uh, the White House and this particular office in the United States and numerous U.S. evangelical groups, Christian movements in the United States. And again, I want to highlight the difference between promoting and protecting religion. In a secular state, protection is one thing. Promoting is a separate issue uh, and does raise some questions using Clifford Orwin's framework that we discussed or, or introduced a little bit earlier. The third issue uh, related to the office as it moves forward is the question of a Judeo-Christian agenda and whether or not the office will be open to the protection of all groups and faiths. Uh, there's, there's, again, it's difficult to evaluate an office that does not yet exist, but there are two recent developments, and there are a couple of developments that have occurred that do raise some questions around this specific issue. Uh, in October of 2011, John Baird met with approximately 100 religious leaders in Canada to discuss the office. And there was an official panelist, and then there was a question, and there was an official panel, and then there was a question and answer period afterwards. 
Uh, the six official panelists, again, raised some questions as to whether or not the office will represent a full range of diverse religious groups in Canada. Of the panelists, there was the current director of the U.S. Office of International Religious Freedom, Thomas Farr, who is a Catholic. Uh, Raymond D'Souza, who is a Roman Catholic priest and columnist uh, and commentator, was also on the panel. There were two representatives from the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, and there was also a representative from B'nai B'rith, uh, Canada, which is a Jewish advocacy group. Only one of the panelists uh, was from a non-Judeo-Christian group, and that was someone from the Baha'i community of Canada. So in the question and answer period that followed, the reporters that were there also uh, took uh, advantage of looking at who was asking the questions and who was uh, raising uh, the issues during the question and answer period that followed. And three-quarters of the questions uh, at that forum came from Christian groups. And there was only one Muslim representative that participated in the question and answer session. Uh, probably most notably absent were the, uh, a number of uh, Asian religious groups that also face uh, significant persecution in other countries. Uh, there was an absence of Hindus, Sikhs, Buddhists, and other religious community members uh, from within Canada. Which leads to the, the, the other observation related to this, this forum is that a lot of those groups weren't there because there's been a very limited communication between the federal government and uh, these other groups within Canada. It, it, the communication has targeted largely Judeo-Christian groups to this point. With some, with some exceptions. So that also raises some issues of wh whether or not the uh, office will, will represent a full range of diverse uh, religious perspectives. Uh, the question's also been raised about the office in terms of whether or not uh, religious freedom will uh, tri triumph is the wrong triumph is the wrong word, but will uh, be highlighted, I guess is a better word to put it, will be highlighted at the expense of other human rights in Canada, and shockingly, not shockingly, but surprisingly, one of the, the key critics here has been Amnesty International Canada, which has been quite critical of the office, and not because of the fact that the office is designed to protect religious freedom. Obviously, international, Amnesty International is not going to have issues with protecting religious, pers uh, protecting religious freedom in other countries. But what Amnesty International has raised concerns about is the potentially narrow focus of what that protection will look like. So what other human rights or will other human rights come at the expense of protection of religious freedom? Why is the office not also looking at other basic human rights uh, beyond religion, such as the rights of women, uh, the rights of uh, gays and lesbians, uh, the rights uh, related to principles such as free speech, which are uh, openly, there's open persecution in numerous states uh, on those particular issues as well. So those rights are regularly violated throughout the world, and Amnesty has concerns that the office, by limiting itself to religion, uh, will not adequately uh, highlight some of these other problems as well. Another uh, potential hurdle for the office are some basic concepts of international relations uh, and norms of international relations behavior, and that's sovereignty and extraterritoriality, and the difficulty in enforcing issues in other states uh, related to these types of, of concerns. So very, very briefly, sovereignty is, we've lived in modern Westphalian sovereign states for about four, 400 years now. They're relatively new constructs in the international system, but they do operate un, under basic principles. And these two, sovereignty and extraterritoriality, are, are, are two of them. And sovereignty is based on the principle of domestic autonomy. If you go back to the Treaty of Westphalia, which ushered in the year of the modern Westphalian state in 1648, 
one of the core components of this is domestic autonomy, and it continues to be a core component of the international system today. So although the Treaty of Westphalia touched on who the great powers were at the time and who were the sovereign states of the era, it highlighted the, uh, the, the rights of states to determine specific things for their citizens. And ironically, somewhat in, in, that, in this case, it was religion uh, in, in 1648. The state would now have the right to determine its religion of its citizens, which then ushered in discussions of liberal secularism and whether the state should do that. Uh, this principle is still with us today and is still a, a cornerstone of international relations. In fact, uh, domestic autonomy is guaranteed under Section 2.7 of the UN uh, Charter. So uh, this grants sovereign control of all states over its citizens, which has raised lots of problems in, and uh, for the United Nations in dealing with human rights abuses against citizens, even including genocide. The UN has been unable and unwilling to intervene in domestic states and domestic politics because of Article 2.7, and sovereignty will continue to be an issue for all countries trying to motivate states' domestic behavior, including Canada and the Office of Religious Freedom. Extraterritoriality is another norm of, of international relations, and it's simply the concept that you will not try and extend your ger domestic jurisdiction into other states. So the example I always give students is, uh, I always uh, show students is the United States loves the concept of extraterritoriality. It tries to extend its jurisdiction into other states all the time. Um, and one of, the, one of the best examples is the Trading with the Enemy Act or the, Can the uh, Helms-Burton Act, which deals primarily with Cuba and trading with Cuba. So if a Canadian firm trades with Cuba, the United States will try and prosecute those people. That's an example of extraterritoriality, extending your domestic jurisdiction into other states. That's not uh, that's not a <coughs> excuse me. That's not something that is is considered to be uh, acceptable behavior in the international community. So, extraterritoriality is also a core concept that will stand in the way of Canada trying to enforce its view of religious freedom on other states in the international community. Uh, the sixth consideration here, and, and this is where I actually think the the real story rests with the Office of Religious Freedom, and that's questions of domestic politics and um, and majority governments. I actually don't think personally that the Office of Religious Freedom has much to do with religion at all. Uh, I think primarily it has to do with uh, partisan domestic reasons and the pursuit of majority governments. This, I'll, I'll elaborate on that. Um, this particular government uh, is not unlike other governments. I often compare Stephen Harper to Mackenzie King to my students because Mackenzie King was the longest-serving prime minister in Canadian history and would often use domestic politics or sorry Canadian foreign policy to try and win and lose or try and win domestic elections. So he would often choose foreign policy issues directly to speak to domestic constituents, and I actually think this is what Stephen Harper is doing here as well. Stephen Harper, to win a majority government, needed very specific ridings in Ontario and Quebec to win a majority government, most of them located in Toronto and, and Montreal. And if you look at some of the ridings that they highlighted and targeted, there is a specific religious aspect in religious communities within many of these ridings. One such riding was Mississauga Arendale, which has a large population of Coptic Christians, many of the ones that were highlighted by Baird as being persecuted in other countries as well. And its MP, Bob Deschert, uh, from Mississauga Arendale, is now the parliamentary secretary to John Baird and is now responsible for the Office of Religious Freedom. Jewish support uh, in other ridings in Montreal and Quebec, or sorry, in Montreal and Toronto, 
is also obvious in this government's foreign policy and the fact that, not surprisingly, that Jewish groups would also be a priority for the Office of Religious Freedom. Uh, and one doesn't have to look any further than the Conservative government's position on Israel uh, in terms of trying to identify the priority of uh, Israel and Jewish groups for the Canadian government. Um, this is also something that's been evident recently as well with human rights uh, criticisms about Sri Lanka. This government has become very critical about human rights abuses in Sri Lanka, which is valid, but it's interesting that it's raised the issue recently and not historically. And again, I think it's tied very specifically to the fact that Toronto, uh, where many of these ridings are, is home to the uh, largest Tamil diaspora outside of South Asia. So there are numerous voters in the Toronto region uh, that would be interested in that issue. Canada's even gone as far as stating that it will, it's potentially going to violate the next Commonwealth Conference, which will be held in Sri Lanka, uh, which has uh, brought a great deal of uh, condemnation from other Commonwealth countries and concern from other Commonwealth countries such as Britain and Australia. So again, I, this is not the first government to do this. I don't want to suggest that Stephen Harper's doing anything new here. Liberal governments, target, uh, li liberal governments targeted Jewish groups in Montreal ridings for years. The Mulroney Conservatives did the same thing. This is not a new policy. This is not a new idea. But I think you can see some specific ties to the Office of Religious Freedom and, and what Harper needs to form a majority government and needed to form a majority government. Finally, I think the Office of Religious Freedom raises some concerns and questions about bigger issues related to Canadian foreign policy. Um, and I think this is, office is a good indicator of some of the future directions of Canadian foreign policy and some of the trends. And again, I want to make it clear that I'm not being critical of this government specifically. I think a lot of these problems pre predate this government. I think a lot of these problems can be traced back to the Kretchen government as well, but they're certainly highlighted with policies such as this. Uh, and I think you don't need to look any further than John Baird's speech to the United Nations where the office was announced to get uh, a sense of what this is all about. Uh, the Office of Religious Freedom was the only issue, uh, the only new issue of Canadian foreign policy that was raised by John Baird in his address to the United Nations. Uh, the speech was full of, of rather vague references to enlightened sovereignty and self-interest. It made references to the UN's slow decline, made no reference to Canada's role in that. And did when it did talk about Canada, talked about some rather uh, interesting issues in terms of our past international accomplishments. But there was no reference at all in this speech. In the speech that announced the Office of Religious Freedom at the United Nations, there was no discussion at all about other important foreign policy issues. Not surprisingly, there was no reference to climate change. There was no reference to Canada's slashing of its foreign aid budget and spending, especially in continents such as Africa. There was no discussion of, of relevant issues uh, such as post-9-11 security, no, re no discussion of nuclear proliferation, and no discussion of terrorism. What's become clear of this government is that there is a, a real attempt to distance itself. And again, this isn't limited to this government. Other governments have done this in the past. But this government is going to try and limit itself uh, to any sort of liberal brand of foreign policy that has existed in the past. So gone are, are references to human security, uh, multilateralism, and making international institutions work, and things such as climate change. And I don't think it's surprising, and again, I don't want to lay the blame at the feet of the Harper government for this because the Kretchen Conservatives also bear some responsibility for this as well. But the previous decade was the first decade in the history of the United Nations that Canada was not elected to the Security Council. 
and that has a great deal to do with our damaged legitimacy in the international community. Uh, and when it comes, especially it's not only the fact that the 10 years that we didn't get elected, but when we did make a run to try and get elected at the very end of that 10-year period, we were beaten by uh, great international contributors such as Portugal. Which, which is made even worse because the UN makes a point of not trying to have a European focus on non-permanent members, and there were four other European members already on the Security Council at that time, and Portugal got on instead of us. So when you see John Baird going to Israel and condemning, or I'm sorry, going to the Palestinian Authority and condemning their policies towards Israel, you need to be aware, and this is my opinion, that that has very little to do with foreign policy or how we're perceived in the international community. Because, quite frankly, we aren't perceived as a legitimate um, a contributor to the international community. I'll put it at that. That's designed specifically for a domestic audience and the support of those voters in those communities that he needs for majority government. So, at the end, is it a myth or is it a reality? Uh, it's still a rather ambiguous uh, measure, and uh, using my previous professor's measure, I could never understand whether federalism was a myth or reality by the end of the day either. Uh, uh, but I think we'll uh, leave that open to interpretation, and perhaps we can revisit some of those issues uh, in the question and answer period. Thank you very much.